1796, July, August, September. Three months in which Napoleon Bonaparte's army runs rings around the Austrians in North Italy. Almost, it's almost cartoonish, up the, up the uh, DJ Valley into the Alps, down Bassano and back to uh, Mantua all over again. In Germany, the French commanders simply can't get their act together. This was the final opportunity that Moreau had, and he did not take it, and it's going to be, it's really dooms the French offensives on the Rhine in 1796. And in Paris, the Directory looks on, uncertainly, as their young general star continues to rise. This is a civil government that doesn't like the military at all. They're very suspicious of them. They're terrified of the possibility of someone taking over. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and this is episode 19 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which Bonaparte proves that the best form of defence, strategic or otherwise, is attack. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792-1815 period three months at a time, and for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by Rick Schneid, Jordan Hayworth and Bianca Maria Fontana, as well as by our usual suspects, Charles Estelle and uh, Alexander Mikabaridze, who are smilingly with me now as we size up the headline developments for these three months. With the Papal States swiftly humiliated in July into a damaging peace settlement with the French, who snap up the papal legations uh, but stop short of advancing on Rome. The focus quickly returns to the Austrians once again, particularly given that General Wurmser has received 25,000 reinforcements from the Rhine, and we see Wurmser heading south in three columns. The trap seems to be closing on Napoleon Bonaparte's forces, but somehow Bonaparte manages to see off first one of these two jaws closing in on him at Lonato and then the other at Castiglione in early August. Later in August, and uh, following some uh, nudgings from the directory, Bonaparte heads north up the Adige uh, Valley, which runs to the west of Lake Garda. And in response, Wurmser tries sneaking around him. And I've got a sort of, a, if you imagine a letter D, well, Bonaparte's heading up the straight line, uh, whilst Wurmser decides to head round the curve um, along the curved Brenta Valley to Mantua at the bottom. And of course, that's his goal to relieve the siege of Mantua. He finds himself rather surprised when Bonaparte starts chasing him. Him, starts pursuing him and the two sides have a standoff at Bassano where Verms has sent packing and so he manages to make it down to Mantua by the end of this quarter but perhaps with his tail between his legs meanwhile on the Rhine in this three months well it begins with Moreau uh, on the upper Rhine pressing his delayed offensive and we do see success for the French initially at Rastatt on the 5th of July but there then follows a decision by the Austrian commander, the Archduke Charles, to pull back to the Danube. And uh, after a counterattack goes awry at Nerisheim in August, he crosses back over the Danube before a second counterattack at Amberg in early September goes slightly better. But as is so often the case in this theatre, success against one army is undermined 
uh, by the other. Uh, Charles can't follow up against Jourdain because the, the Austrian Latour has defeated Moreau and then Moreau can't follow up against Latour because Jordan is retreating. Oh dear, oh dear. I mean, this is a very simplified version of events. There's a lot of doing and froing. And um, I did share a draft of this uh, on Facebook and uh, was was kindly informed by one listener that I got Germany all wrong. So <laughs> this is a very sim- simplified version of events. But, but, but there it is. Well, what about the other developments? August sees France signing a treaty of alliance with Spain while the Dutch fleet at the Cape Colony on the southern tip of Africa surrenders to the British. And there's more good news for the British on Saint-Domingue, where their forces recapture Mirabilais, a setback for Toussaint Toussaint Louverture's forces uh, as that slow-burning struggle continues. In mid-September, we have a French squadron escaping the British blockade of Toulon and heading across the Atlantic, where it's going to play havoc with uh, Canadian shipping. And at roughly the same time, the President of the United States of America's farewell address teaches them how to say goodbye. And on September the 28th, another head of state, Empress Catherine the Great of Russia, aligns herself with Great Britain, adding another power to the coalition. Although, uh, you know, that's that's debatable. We'll come, come on to that. And the thing is that there's all sorts going on in Europe and the wider world. And Certainly, this is a good moment to turn, as usual, to our expert summarisers, Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool and Professor Alexander Mikabridze of Louisiana State University, Shreveport. So very much in your hands, as usual, Charles and Alex. And let's begin with a question about trying to contextualise what Bonaparte's managed in this three months. We'll come on to the details of the campaigning in our in our first slot but just for now very 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 big picture you know if if we were to talk about these three months uh in isolation alex how do we place bonaparte's achievements against what's going on in the rest of the world i think um if we look strategically for me the two big developments and they're interconnected in many respects are the entry um of uh or re-entry of spain and the entry of russia because that really uh, has a profound impact on geopolitical distribution of forces and a realignment, really, of, of positions, not just in Italy or in, in Rhineland, which are more, of a, from that point of view, an operational, uh, of a operational importance. But now we have uh, a development that I think Charles and I have been kind of hammering on, and that is... Revolution oftentimes is perceived to be about ideological struggle. But here, right, in 96, we see a revival of the old pre-revolutionary alliance, pre-revolutionary interests. Um, you know, Franco-Spanish alliance is effectively the family compact, right, uh, that pre- predated the revolution. Uh, and the, the fact that these two powers now are... Uh, uh, rallying together to confront the uh, uh, the British on the seas and on the land, it, it will be of great, great consequence in the years to come. Right. So it's almost as if what's coming up uh, in you know what are the consequences of the, of these uh, alignments is significant, and 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 one of those alignments is is Russia, of course. That that's a pretty big deal for the future. Absolutely. Um, and I think unlike Spain, um, the entry of Russia will be. Uh, of importance down the road. So Spanish entry has an immediate effect, uh, not the least being that the Spain has a uh, sizable naval force, 
which can be of, of great threat, uh, of considerable threat to the, uh, to the Royal Navy. As for Russia, its entry uh, into the coalition in 1796 is important, but we'll see if the Russian involvement will actually materialize. <laughs> That's right. And so, Charles, what about um, Bonaparte himself? And, and, you know, what about his achievements in the previous three months? Because he was zipping around all over the place, managed to achieve that political objective of getting Piedmont out of the war in our last episode. Well, in this three months, he's on the strategic defensive, but still seems to be managing to succeed by zipping around all over the place. Well, yes, um... Bonaparte was was a master of manoeuvre. Um, he also believed very much in what you in the principle of what you might call the offensive defensive. In other words, that you might be strategically on the defensive, but you constantly attack your enemy, um, try and wrest the initiative from him, try and throw him off balance, try and cause him casualties, and and Napoleon does this supremely well um you know it's it's often been said that that uh, the italian campaign is in napoleon's finest hour as a general and and that's yeah pretty defensible um it has to be said that he achieves this with a small army now that might sound good and of course it is good he achieves a great deal with a small army but the thing is that you can often achieve more with a small army than with a large army. This is an army which is easy to manage. It's not too big. The various divisional headquarters aren't too far away from Napoleon's central headquarters. Um, there aren't too many problems about feeding and supplying the troops. You know, you're not, you're not going to um, basically perish of starvation um this is a manageable exercise and it's interesting that it is this manageable exercise that produces napoleon's best results militarily um i don't want to anticipate developments but shall we say you, you will see a, a a rather different picture in in years to come but of course i'm just just yeah. conclude about napoleon himself um the very fact that he is winning victories consistently, whereas many other generals like Morrow, for example, will win a, will win a victory here and then get defeated there. Um, this catapults Napoleon to a position of political influence, if not political power. And, and of course, Napoleon um, furthers this development by this intense campaign of propaganda. Um, he sets up not one newspaper, but two newspapers, both of them dedicated to extolling his virtues and and um, praising the victories of the army of Italy. Um, and, and this reinforces Napoleon's hold on public opinion and indeed political opinion um, in Paris. 
Right, well, the Napoleonic Quarterly is far from, uh, you know, a propagandist organ for uh, Bonaparte himself. But boy, oh boy, have we have we got something to uh, talk about here? This campaign, this general is doing something pretty impressive. And so let's let's dive straight in and and uh, uh, admire what he's been up to because it is quite something. Um, so uh, our first segment is with Professor Rick Schneid. He's Herman and Louise Smith Professor of History at High Point University. Frederick Schneid, and we we uh, heard from. Rick in the last episode and again now for the next three months and as I said we'd left the North Italian theatre with Bonaparte assuming the strategic defensive he was besieging the fortress of Mantua but otherwise just hanging out in North Italy well here's Rick describing how the Austrians are looking to take the logical next step uh, in uh, in these three months in response Franz, uh, Emperor, Kaiser Franz, Emperor Franz, uh, calls upon uh, General uh, Wurmser, uh, who is uh, the commanding the imperial forces on the Upper Rhine. Uh, those who are students of the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars often see Wurmser or introduced to Wurmser now, uh, and he will be a loser against Bonaparte. But in fact, Wurmser was one of the most victorious of Austrian generals, only topped by uh, the emperor's uh, uh, brother, the Archduke Charles. Uh, and Wurmser, after a successful campaign in, in, in South Germany, was told by uh, the Emperor of Franz, to take what troops he needs uh, and to retake Italy. Uh, it was clear that the worry that the Austrians had, and rightfully so, was that the French would invade the Tyrol from Italy, and that was the inherited lands, the Urblanda of the Habsburgs. Uh, and so uh, in all of his letters, the Emperor's letters to Wurmser, it is, my provinces, my interior provinces are in danger, take what you need, and, re and regain Mantua and defeat the French. And it takes two months for Wurmser to assemble his army of veteran forces from Germany, uh, and they combine with the ragtag remnants of Bolu's army, very few, uh, and some militia. And uh, Wurmser develops uh, actually a very good plan that almost works. Uh, in fact, it, it, is, uh, it, it almost succeeds. It's shy about five miles of the jaws of the trap shutting. Uh, when he launches this attack, this offensive against Napoleon in July 1796. So what was the plan then and what was the trap that, that frustrated it? So the plan was that Wurmser was going to divide his army uh, with uh, 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 smaller groups, about 18,000 troops, uh, smaller command under General uh, uh, to to advance through the mountain passes and fall upon Brescia and Salo and to carry out essentially a maneuver sur la derrière through the Alps behind the French lines uh, while Wurmser took the main army down uh, through from Rivoli down uh, to uh, to in fact uh, Mantua uh, and assail the French from the north. Uh, but Wurmser's assault through uh, from the uh, down the Adige Valley, also further west, another column was coming down through Bassano. Uh, the objective was to keep Napoleon's attention to the northeast and the east uh, across the Adige River, whereas the hammer was going to fall uh, from the northwest through the mountains on Brescia and Salo. And that's the trap uh, and that Napoleon 
actually falls for. Uh, he is completely unaware of the movement of the Austrians in the mountain passes uh, and is clearly focused on Wurmser coming uh, in multiple columns uh, on the other side of the Adige. And it is on July 27th, July 28th, I'm sorry, July 28th, um, when he realizes the trap. And so what happens is Bonaparte, realizing this problem, calls his generals together and says, we need to concentrate. The concentration is uh, further to the west. He abandons the Adige line and they march back to Brescia uh, and, and, and Castiglione and Lonato and Desenzano. Uh, and they uh, there they retake Brescia from the Austrians uh, and then uh, defeat in detail the flanking column that had come out of the Alps. Uh, they defeat that. Uh, and there are several engagements fought between July 28th and July 30, 31, which are generally collectively called the uh, second, the, the battles of Lo Lonato. Um, there's uh, there's one uh, one battle fought on the 28th, late it's on the 28th, but the main battle when we when you read the accounts is uh, several actually several engagements in the region that are fought. Uh, by July 30th, 31. Uh, but Wurmser has successfully compelled Napoleon to abandon the siege of Mantua. Uh, Serrier is ordered away uh, to pull back, uh, and he has to bury his guns, his siege guns, because he can't take them. And Wurmser succeeds. He enters Mantua as, as the savior of Mantua. But while he's doing that, Napoleon is crushing Wurmser's other wing, uh, that is to the north. Uh, and once done, Napoleon now turns his army on Wurmser, uh, and that will culminate in the two-day battle of Castiglione, uh, which, is, uh, which is decisive, and it will result in the destruction of Wurmser's uh, main force, and Napoleon will then pursue that force uh, up the, uh, uh, up the uh, DJ Valley, back into the mountains, uh, and pursue them all the way up uh, uh, towards uh, Trent, uh, and uh, this is when the Austrians sort of curve around Wurmser, makes a sharp uh, right turn down back to Bassano and tries to get back to, uh, tries to, get back to Mantua, which he will um, in September. Uh, but he does it under the walls uh, and fights a major two-day battle against Napoleon, who's been chasing him. Up the, it's almost cartoonish, up the, up the uh, DJ Valley into the Alps, down Bassano and back to uh, Mantua all over again. Well, look, Rick, you said that um, you weren't going to make my head spin in this this three months, but I'm afraid it's happened. It's happened again. But yeah, it does seem a bit cartoonish. But um, and, and just to maybe let's just ask you about that. I mean, why was it? Why was Napoleon's? Why was he so successful here against the Austrians in all this running to and fro? Well, I think one of the key things is his pursuit of a defeated enemy, never giving them a moment's respite. Uh, his objective was to destroy the enemy army. I think later on, when he's Emperor Napoleon, he says, well, he says uh, many, ge many generals see many things, but I only see one thing. I see the enemy army and I seek to destroy it. And I think here in Italy, we see that very clearly, that, that he grabs hold of the enemy and doesn't let go until they are destroyed. And that's unique. Yes. And of course, he had the you need cavalry to do that, don't you? And you, you need to be mobile. 
Well, actually, and here in Italy, he has some cavalry, but it's not the cavalry. Italy is very bad for cavalry actions because of the canals and vineyards. It's not oh. conducive to extensive ch- cavalry charges, so the pursuit's largely on foot. Uh, oh. The cavalry is there for scouting. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, so there's this is this is not later on like when you'll have Murat and the cavalry reserve, <laughs> you know, pursuing a defeated enemy. This is these are French divisions marching, uh, and so interestingly enough. Uh, the 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 bloodiest battle and the greatest attrition that Napoleon suffers is between uh, Castiglione and uh, this battle before the gates of uh, of Mantua in September. Uh, Napoleon will lose twenty five percent of his army in the battles and in the pursuit and the constant dis- uh, fighting uh, with the Austrians, all to achieve that decisive victory. Right. Um, well, let's ask about the Chisalpine Republic, uh, last of all, and um, this new political construct which, which arrives as a result of all of this uh, behind the front lines. Yes. Um, and so, as typical with French revolutionary military victories, we have the establishment of these, uh, of these republics, uh, which will be, in many ways, satellites of, the, of, of France, of the French Republic. Uh, and we see this in Italy as well with the creation of the Cisalpine Republic and Milan as its capital. Uh, there, are, um, there are many in uh, Lombardy and Venetia who are not supporters of the French, uh, and there are many who are, usually the younger generation. And in fact, in Brescia, you have some of the most ardent supporters. Brescia is right across the border in Venetia from Lombardy, and the uh, Lakey brothers, uh, Giuseppe and Teodoro Lakey, will be leaders of the um, Chisalpine uh, volunteers, uh, Chisalpine legion, and become substantial generals in the later kingdom of Italy, uh, Napoleonic generals. Uh, And so you see the creation not only of a politically loyal revolutionary republic set up by the French, but you see also the creation of auxiliary forces, uh, Italian legion uh, that is set up, the Chisalpine regiments to help supplement uh, the French army, but they are employed largely um, for occupation duty and garrison duty, not so much as combat troops at this point in time. What would you say is the situation militarily by the end of September 1796? By the end of September 1796, uh, Wormser, with the remnants of his army, are trapped in Mantua, uh, and there is a limitation of food uh, and and water uh, and too many troops, uh, and the situation is not good. Uh, He's locked himself up again. Uh, The Austrian army that uh, is outside of Mantua, that had not gone in, that had remained in the Tyrol, is really maybe 18,000 regulars and then militia. Uh, And in fact, it's going to require uh, greater reinforcement, which the Austrians don't have because they're still fighting in Germany. So the situation is quite poor, but Franz is determined uh, to reclaim Northern Italy, to to reclaim Lombardy. Uh, And so uh, he empowers uh, General Alvinci, who was a subordinate of Wormser, uh, to attempt, uh, uh, again, the the, uh, the, uh, raising the siege of Mantua. (laughs) 
players Rick Schneid on Firms' tricky situation in Manta itself at the end of that interview, and, and that sums up the military situation. But of course, alongside the military is the political as well. And this is a momentous period for North Italy. So, so Alex, how would you size up the significance of what's going on here for the politics in that region? I think uh, if we move away from uh, military um, aspects for just a second, um, it is important to underscore that this is the beginning of a crucial moment in Italian history, the so-called triennio, uh, the, the beginning of the three-year period from the French invasion forward that represented, uh, I think, the first enduring rupture uh, in Italy with an old order based on privilege, localism, uh, and the Tridentine kind of Catholicism. And the the related kind of importance of this period is that this this break was incarnated in the political experience of the republics that the French will start establishing in these occupied uh, territories that will be modeled after France. And to me, the most important aspect of, of what Bonaparte's legacy will be, right, and which starts here, is the emergence of the uh, of the Italian patriots, uh, sometimes referred to as Jacobini, um, somewhat misnamed, uh, as a vanguard of this new order um, and the political and social institutions that they will try to create that will be, once again, both inspired by the French model, but also represent a new Italian culture. But the life in these republics will be riddled with a paradox, and the paradox being that the French kind of bring the change and sustain the support for these patriotic causes. But when faced with popular revolts, when the people actually say no <laughs> to the change, the French will use heavy-handed tactics to make people accept them. And so here it is, right? Um, I have a wonderful cup from the uh, from one of my students uh, after discussions of what was happening in this period, and the cup has inscription of beat me with a freedom stick. And I think that's what the French are doing here. And Charles, it's the area around Padua, I think, where the first sort of political entity is is being formed up here. So it, it, we go so far as to say it's a new republic. Yes, um, the French the French move in. Um, the Directory never actually intended um, there to be satellite republics. The, the Directory wanted the territories to be, yes, occupied, controlled, certainly, but they were to be retained for bargaining with Austria in a future peace settlement. Um, Napoleon changes all that quite unilaterally. Um, in complete defiance of Paris, he, he says, no, right, we're, we're going to move towards creation of a satellite state in northern Italy. Now, this satellite state is commonly referred to as the Cisalpine Republic. And indeed, it takes that name in, uh, I think, June 1797. But at this point, still in 1796, what you have is, is a much smaller entity, yes, centred on Padua, called the Cispadan Republic. Um, but yes, it was it was the same idea. You, you had a republic which was going to be founded on French principles, which is going to copy French models, which is going to copy French laws. Um, and this is simply expanded um, when the Cisalpine Republic um, is created, a much bigger area of territory for capital in Milan. 
However, let's talk a little bit about um, what French occupation or if you want French liberation means. There's a famous proclamation by, uh, well, it's, it's, actually, it's actually a spoof, but it's, it's supposed to be a, a French general on, on entering an Italian town. The French army has arrived and you are free. Anybody caught on the streets after sunset will be shot. Let's not make any bones about this. The French are not acting out of missionary altruism. Yeah, this is uh, Alex's freedom stick all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do want to uh, ask you a similar question after we've heard from our our next uh, guest, uh, a segment which is on, which is Jordan Hayworth returning to talk about southern Germany, because again, there you you have a a, a different political context, but something similar going on. But let's hear from him first of all. Of course, these two theatres, North Italy and southern Germany, clearly interconnected, not least because the Austrians are reinforcing their Italian efforts from further north. Um, But uh, let's continue now the story of what most people at the time after all did view as the primary theatre with uh, with Dr Jordan R Hayworth he's an associate professor of military and security at Air University's Air Command and Staff College and he's the author of Revolutionary France's War of Conquest in the Rhineland published in 2019 nothing had you know been decided in this theatre um, in the first month of the campaign in, in June, uh, the French are not able to achieve uh, any kind of decisive battle or decisive victory against uh, the Austrians on the Rhine uh, within the month, month of June. They don't coordinate their operations effectively, effectively enough, but they are able to at least get across the Rhine and they force uh, Charles back to the right bank, put him on the, on the defensive and in you know an increasingly kind of difficult um, situation, so they still do have a chance as July opens to uh, encircle him or envelop him and possibly inflict a decisive uh, battle um, up- upon him, which again is part of their plan before they would advance to Vienna. They want to defeat the main Austrian army. So July will open uh, with a series of uh, French victories uh, following off of Moreau's success at the end of June after he was finally able to cross the Rhine. Um, again, those successes were not decisive because he you know, only conducted his offensive after Jordan's offensive had failed. So Jordan is in retreat while, Jordan, while Moreau is, is advancing. But nonetheless, he is gaining ground uh, by the end of June and, and in early July. He's facing uh, now the left wing of Charles's army, which is commanded by Latour uh, with uh, a smaller force than him. So he has an advantage. But because Jordan is uh, withdrawing uh, to the north, Charles is now able to use central position. So Charles... Uh, Force has uh, Vartensleben with his right wing in the north to kind of monitor Jordan while he now takes the main Austrian army south uh, to support Latour against, uh, against Moreau. And what are the main battles that we see then that, that as, as Charles seeks to take on Moreau there? Uh, well, Moreau on the 5th of July uh, gains a victory uh, where actual, actually uh, General Dessay was uh, the general leading the division at uh, Rostat 
on the on the fifth of July, uh, and this is a victory against Latour. Charles then arrives uh, to support Latour at Etlingen uh, by the ninth of July, and they uh, prepare. They're they're planning to uh, try to recover Rostadt, but Moreau continues his. Uh, offensive and attacks them first at Etlingen. It's actually uh, a pretty hard-fought battle to say is uh, repulsed initially, but uh, Moreau has more of his army across at that point, so he brings two other divisions uh, to the attack, and they uh, basically outflank Charles. Um, so a pretty sizable battle. You have uh, each army has about thirty-five thousand troops. Uh, Charles loses about two thousand, but he's not decisively defeated. And he's able to start withdrawing to the east. Um, Charles is a commander that's very focused on securing his supply lines, uh, keeping his army in being, uh, you know, denying the French a, a, a decisive battle. And he is falling back on his kind of base, his center of gravity, uh, kind of in, in the valley between the, the mine and the Danube rivers. And he starts to adopt this defensive strategy, which is focused on pulling the French armies deeper and deeper into Germany, away from their supply lines and their bases, and uh, putting himself into a position where he would eventually be able to unite his main body with one of his wings and inflict a pretty crushing defeat on one, of, on one or both of these armies. So is that how it plays out? It is essentially, um, although Charles uh, is in great danger uh, for a while, and um, he gives the French um, an opportunity to unite on several occasions. So, as the campaign plays out, Charles uh, comes across, you know, looking very well because he he successfully repulses this offensive, um, and he also writes. Um, his memoirs and his own histories of this campaign where he kind of presents himself as a mastermind of 18th century kind of maneuver warfare. And he does conduct himself very skillfully here, here, but there are several moments in July and August, especially where he's removed himself uh, by removing himself from contact, especially with Moreau's army he gives Moreau the opportunity to simply march north and unite with Jordan, who has recrossed the Rhine by the end of June and is, and is conducting an offensive east along the Main River. And if those two armies had simply united with one another and then confronted Charles's main body, they would have overwhelmed him uh, nu- numerically. So that you have to ask, why didn't, why didn't that happen then? It's a combination of uh, factors, um, but ultimately, I think the, the the blame for this really has to fall on the directory, and in particular, uh, Lazar Carnot, um, who had been you know the the kind of chief uh, strategist for the French armies back in 1794. He's now returned to the directory here, and uh, essentially, what you can see in his instructions to Jordan and Moreau. Is he wants them he he wants them to carry out an envelopment, so that means not marching together to unite and then attack Charles you know kind of more frontally, but this kind of envelopment attack which had worked in Belgium in 1794, 
but that was in a situation, a different different terrain, but also where you're they're fighting a multinational army with a different kind of command structure. Charles is a single commander in charge of the Austrian Imperial Army. Yes, that must have helped. But still, classic armchair general stuff there from Carnot. So, okay, that's what didn't happen. What what did happen? So essentially, uh, Charles turns. He's being pursued. Uh, Latour's being pursued by Moreau. Charles is maintaining pretty good contact with Moreau uh, through July and into August. And then in the north, Jordan and Vartensleben are kind of maneuvering with one another along the Mine River. And so the campaign is moving further and further east. Charles initially um, uh, goes after um, uh, Moreau and and wants to kind of... um, you know, uh, 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 calls him, uh, uh, inflicted a feat upon him that would that would hold him off for a while. Uh, this occurs uh, on the um, 11th of August at Narasheim. Um, Moreau does not have his battle well, his army well concentrated for this battle. It's dispersed, and so Charles attacks him. Now he attacks him really kind of in the wrong place. So it's not it's not as decisive of a victory as it could have been. But it nonetheless kind of halts um, Moreau's advance sufficiently for a while to allow Charles to then move north to support Vartensleben on the mine against uh, against Jordan. And so, again, this ends up working out for Charles, but uh, Moreau really misses an opportunity here because he's not decisively defeated at Narasheim. And now Charles has broken off contact with him and marched northeast uh, to support Vartensleben. And all Moreau really needs to do is is follow Charles or march kind of straight north, and he's going to be able to unite with Jordan, and and they they would have superior numbers to bring against Charles. Instead, Moreau does recover from. Uh, the setback at Narasheim, but instead of pursuing Charles or following Charles to unite with Jordan, he goes east against Latour, who kind of serves as bait to keep him distracted. Uh, but this is going to lead to a defeat for Latour, I think. It does. It does. On, on the 24th of August, Moreau does defeat uh, Latour, whom he greatly outnumbered at Friedberg. Um, and Latour marches again kind of off towards, uh, you know, towards Vienna. But what that's doing is it's, pu- it's pulling Moreau away from Jordan when Jordan really needed him. Because on the same day, uh, the 24th of August, Vartensleben and Charles finally unite against Jordan at Amberg and attack him with superior forces and force him to commence the retreat from uh, Germany and back along the mine. This was the final opportunity that Moreau had, and he did not take it, and it's going to be, it's really dooms the French offensives on the Rhine in 1796. Well, I've got to be honest with you, um, Jordan, this is deeply frustrating. It's just painful to, you know, so many missed opportunities here. Exactly. Um, by, by the French. And it sounds like, OK, Charles is missing a few opportunities of his own. But this sort of dogged wearing down of the French, this sort of m- manoeuvring approach, 
it's almost the sort of antidote to, to Bonaparte zipping about all over the place. It's an alternative way. It's a more traditional way of conducting warfare. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think it. I think it says. Um, I think it says a lot about Moreau and Jordan in terms of their abilities as commanders, their command styles. I also think we do have to, you know, always keep in mind the the political context and the orders that they are receiving from the Directory, um, and you know, they're not. Uh, they don't have the same willingness as Napoleon to just kind of take matters into their own hands and just ignore the Directory. Um, but that's that's just the kind of commanders that they were. And then I also think we just have to always remember the supply situation and the fact that, you know, the Army of Italy that Napoleon had was in bad supplies at the start of the 1796 campaign. But once he breaks through Piedmont and then into Lombardy, they're able to live off of the land in northern Italy and and, and restore themselves uh, materially, which, which the... French armies are not, so they're much more susceptible to being concerned with their supply lines uh, than he was in uh, in, uh, in in northern Italy. Uh, also, curiously, there Moreau especially, but but Jordan too to some extent, they're constantly complaining about the lack of maps uh, for the regions of Germany that they were in. Their plan was to defeat Charles Moore on the frontier on the Rhine, and then just go to the Danube and basically they would be able to go unimpeded to Vienna. So they really weren't preparing initially at the start of the campaign for having to actually fight uh, along the mine and in the parts of Germany that they that they were in the campaign. There's Jordan Hayworth talking about the situation on the Rhine and the Alex, the withdrawal to the Danube. I mean, that's got to be bad news for a number of Austria's allies in southern Germany. But this is a difficult time for the Holy Roman Empire. Pretty must be pretty bad news for for that entity in general. Uh, you know, given that we talked in Italy about the political fallout of all of this fighting, maybe we should be doing the same here and wondering what all this means for politics in southern Germany at the time. Absolutely. And the contemporary view of the empire was not necessarily positive. For many of its inhabitants, the empire was, to use that famous expression from the later day, the sick man of Europe. In fact, the original expression, the sick man of Europe, was used not towards the Ottoman Empire, which the expression is quite famous for, but rather by men like Johann um, Zadler, who in his dictionary, published in 1745, spoke about German state sickness, which refers to the internal kind of inherent problem that the Holy Roman Empire was uh, uh, suffering from. And uh, the, the War of the First Coalition, and especially this important junction of 1795-96, lays bare the fundamental challenges that empire faced in the preceding uh, a couple hundred years. We, we've talked about the Prussian withdrawal from the coalition, and we've talked about how rapacious Prussia was in terms of consolidating its positions in Germany, right? It was perfectly willing 
to uh, kind of sacrifice the German unity vis-a-vis revolutionary threat emanating from France in exchange for territories. And we know that quite a few uh, territories that Prussians gained were at the expense of this German state. So the the fundamental problem that they are facing right now, the, the empire, is the issue of security. Yeah, there's not much solidarity on display there, is there? <laughs> Absolutely. And especially you point, you know, you, you touched upon the issue of being a small German state and you're now caught between these large sharks, the French from the West, the Prussians in the North, the Austrians, your traditional kind of <laughs> uh, shark that you hang around with in the East. And you have to determine which of them are the viable partners in the future. Yeah, I have, to say, I have a lot of sympathy with these states and with Piedmont as well. You know, if the Austrians are worrying that Piedmont, as we saw in the last episode, are going to flip-flop, well, of course they are. You know, they kind of don't have any choice. And Piedmont was relatively robust compared to these really smaller entities that we see in southern Germany, which, you know, just have to go with the flow. It, it must be just part of what it is to to be existing as they are. Uh, but but was was there a sense that the Holy Roman Empire that the sun was setting on on that institution? Yes and no. In the sense that the holy part, right, <laughs> as much as it was, uh, because we we know of Voltaire's famous uh, quip, but the holy element largely disappeared with the mediatization uh, of the Catholic territories. This this process, uh, gradual process of taking over the Catholic territories uh, or ecclesiastical territories. And just to confirm, because what you mean by mediatization, this is is the state grabbing the Catholic properties, is that right? Exactly. When when, uh, Austria agrees to the left bank of the Rhine being taken over by the the French, um, and the the states um, which have lost territories there um, being promised compensation in the rest of Germany, that really kicks off mediatization. And, and I certainly agree that, that um, states like Prussia, and indeed states like Bavaria for that matter, had been casting very greedy eyes on the extensive French ter- uh, extensive uh, church territories. I mean, uh, a lot of Germany um, was was ruled by the Catholic Church, ruled directly by the Catholic Church. And you have enormously wealthy bishoprics um, like, like Mainz, for example. Um, you have um, abbeys which, which control their own territories. It's, it's, it's an enormous amount of territory. Um, however, let me pick up on this a bit. I certainly, militarily speaking, politically speaking, the, the, the Holy Roman Empire was very weak indeed. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, essentially, the, the Holy Roman Empire was, was, had become a device which allowed Austria to basically control most of Germany. Um, you had um, many Catholic states and these automatically tended to back Austria. You had the clerical states. These automatically tended to back Austria. And and the Protestant states, and within Prussia, were in a minority. Now, um, that arrangement is under great pressure, obviously, from Prussia. Um, That's the first thing to say. 
The second thing to say is that clearly many of the tiny German territories, although they're supposed to send a regiment or two to um, a, 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 an imperial army, a Reichsarmee as it's called, um, their ability to do that is going to be fairly minimal. But what was it like, Charles, for people living on the ground at the time? I mean, we, we, this is a question that we, we've asked about people in the Caribbean at the time and, and, and elsewhere. What about those living in southern Germany uh, during this period? In many, many cases, their situation was actually very favourable. Yes, of course, there are areas of Germany in which there was terrible poverty, terrible inequality and so forth. Yes, it's per that's perfectly true. But there were many states which were very well governed, which were very humanely governed, where, where standards of living um, along the Rhine, for example, because it's in such an important um, line of communications, where standards of living were actually quite high. Um, and the idea that the, it's the same as the same as in, in Italy, the idea that the, the the German population was was itching for change, the is 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 as dotty as the idea of the Italian population itching for change. Many people were entirely happy with the way things were. Thank you very much. And you'd seen this um, very clearly in in. Um, in Mainz, when, when, when Mainz becomes a republic in 1790, oh God, 1792, um, how many people actually are involved in, in the running of this republic? A few hundred. And, and, and there's no popular support really at all. So, so I think that we need to be careful about, about talking about the Holy Roman Empire as a defunct entity. I completely agree with you. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I, I wanted to make this kind of double argument where I cited Zedler's right, German state sickness reference from 1745, and there were quite a few Germans who indeed felt that way. But I wanted to kind of juxtapose it by saying that the empire was certainly not terminal uh, and certainly was not uh, you know, on the way on on its way out prior to the French arrival. In fact, we can see now, right, that the f imperial institutions were undergoing a renaissance in the years before the French arrival. And one of the ways we can look at this is that the legislation and the policy was decided at the Imperial Reichstag, and the two imperial supreme courts indeed enforced the rule of law and dealt with the situation so successfully that. No authority, no government was overthrown by popular protests within the empire, despite all the things happening in France and all the French threat. So the regional framework of this imperial circles, the crisis, right, did offer the outlet for kind of for economic development, for conflict resolution, for coordination policy. Even after the French overran the Low Countries, the empire was still able to defend itself fairly well until, and that's the I think, argument I want to make, is that until Prussia made the deal with France. And once Prussia makes the deal in 1795 and gets out, it takes away the resources of northern Germany, leaving the empire only with southern German resources to grapple with the French threat. And that's, I think, I see the problem with. Uh, when the combination of 
Prussian withdrawal and Bonaparte's brilliance in Italy puts the empire really in the in the pickle. At this point, of course, um, the French aren't talking about setting up satellite republics in Germany. Um, there is this, this short-lived attempt to set up a republic in Mainz um, in 1792, which we've already talked about, and, and the French basically give it no support whatsoever because what they want to do is to, to annex the area to France. So there's no attempt at the moment to set up satellite territories. But if you look at popular attitudes and indeed in many cases elite attitudes within um, the states of the Holy Roman Empire I don't think you can see very much support for French style reforms um, yes there will be a minority of people who think, think it's a good thing but if you look at the Holy Roman Empire carefully and, and strip away all the stuff about it being archaic and all the rest of it um, it still enjoys, or its inst institutions still enjoy, a great deal of loyalty. And yet, those reforms being driven from Paris, and so so much of this period is it, it, Paris is the engine room, which is why I think it's worth for our final segment hearing from Professor Emeritus Bianca Maria Fontana of the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, and, and particularly on the relationship between the front line and the French capital. Uh, here's her thoughts on the Directory's approach to these uh, really fascinating developments. It's quite difficult to uh, reconstruct from the start the director's attitude towards Bonaparte and the Italian campaign. Because the, the, the way the story is rewritten is that, of course, Barras claims to have been the big sponsor and have promoted Bonaparte and so on. The fact is that this is a civil government that doesn't like the military at all. They're very suspicious of them. They're terrified, and as they will continue to be up to, to the coup of Bonaire, of the possibility of someone taking over. And at the same time, they don't have a complete control. But Bonaparte is given, the, as far as I can, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but uh, he's given the, the, the command of the the... the the army of, for the Italian campaign, partly because Scherer doesn't want it and doesn't claims that he hasn't got the money to do it, and Bonaparte says, "Well, I'll do it, nevertheless." You know, and then, but everybody thinks that this is just a sideshow. That you know, the the real usual thing is how we're going to conquer the north. So uh, it, when then he starts winning, of course, they they try to cash on that. Uh, but it's not my my feeling is that some of them didn't really fully understand what was going on in terms of you know the the extent of what was being done. And so I suppose it makes a lot of sense, given what you were saying about this obsession with the natural frontiers uh, of of some of the directors, at least, that their attention would really be on uh, the Rhine rather than on the uh, southern borders or, or the, the Italian campaign. Or the sea. 
for example, which, you know, could have been a reasonable. But as you know, northern ports of France are not really important at this stage. So everything is happening either in Nantes or La Rochelle or, or down in, in Toulon. Toulon is the most important uh, uh, French uh, harbour. And th there is a metaphor that is used by, by Carnot that he writes that France is like a besieged fortress. And, and this is their vision of, of the country. Um, so it will take a bit before they realize that the fortress is actually mobile and uh, can stretch over. Uh, then, of course, there is a big question, this is a political rather than military question, of the annexation. Are you justified after you said that, you know, people are free to determine themselves in the early revolutionary constitution, so they vote to become French. It's not clear who votes to become French, but you take it for good. Um, and then what responsibility you have towards these patriots who support you. And again, some, some say, well, you know, who cares? You know, we, the, the Republic must defend itself. And others say, oh, no, of course, we have responsibility. So, Well, in all that context, how important was the Atlantic world for the Directory and for France? My impression is not very much. Uh, there isn't really an expectation. I mean, during the revolution, you have this myth of America. Now, one of the directors, believe it or not, had fought against the British on sea when he was a young caddie, and that is Paul Barras. Barras, oh, really? Barras was the son of an impoverished old family aristocratic family from the south, you know, like Mirabeau, like, and he was recruited uh, at the age of, what, 16, uh, in, as cadet in the regiment of Pondichéry. So he ended up in, at the siege of Pondichéry, was captured by the British. Then it's quite unclear because his memoirs where he tells the story are completely unreliable. So he's telling lots of, you know, he's met Captain Cook, he's been shipwrecked at the Maldives, and, you know, all sorts of, of, but, you know, in a way he could have boasted of having fought very early on for American freedom or whatever. I mean, assuming that fighting at Pondicherry has anything to do, but this is in the framework of the American war. But he didn't have the money or the social clout of people like Lafayette, like the Lamette brothers, who made initially their political career on their participation to American independence. And at this stage, um, I think the Atlantic world is really fading. Well, you've certainly painted a picture of a government which is preoccupied with domestic affairs, has this fortress mentality, and is worrying about um, uh, its survival and doesn't really have time to think about much else. But I suppose there are the wheels of diplomacy do continue throughout this period. And we do see lots of fighting as we've as we've been talking about. And of course, in this three months for the this current episode, uh, we see that this uh, second treaty of San Ildefonso, a, a, an alliance signed with Spain. So I wondered if we might explore that a little bit, perhaps, and maybe start with a your sense of the French rationale in, in agreeing to sign up to this alliance? I think the rationale is on the side of those who want to achieve peace. So whatever offer is put on 
um, on the table. They're quite happy to take it. And what they, apart from, you know, the fortress mentality, uh, the other thing they want to make sure of, and this will go on until the consulate, is to stop England from conspiring and setting up. Because that, that's the, another feature of, of the di di directory experience is the constant threat of conspiracies, uh, plots, uh, coup d'etat, uh, and, and, you know, they do it so much and when the real coup d'etat comes along, they don't even realize or believe in it anymore because, you know, it, it, it's like a running story. Um, yeah, it's understandable, other, really, given the preceding few years <laughs> that it might be yeah, something they worry about. This is one of the, of the main preoccupations and uh, some of the lawyers who sit on the directory, not the ministry, the lawyers, were people who had, not, not Rebel, but Merlin de Douai and, uh, and someone who will, who's not on the directory, but who is a minister, Cambaceres, who will become the second consul, a very important man in French history. But they had uh, drafted up during terror the laws against the enemies of the Republic. So, you know, they had thought hard about what constituted conspiracy, threat to the state, terrorist law, and all that. Well, thanks very much to Bianca Maria for all of that. And uh, so where are we now? It's been almost at the end of this quarter. It's basically been a year-ish, nearly, since the whiff of Grapeshot and Vendomia and that big change. So the directory's had a bit of time by now to get its 10 feet under the table, <laughs> as it were. So, Alex, how do you think they're getting on? What's the state of directory politics at this stage? Convoluted. They're only going to get worse <laughs> in the years to come. In the year to come. <laughs> but this is where I want to kind of point out one thing, and that is uh, the new kind of development in the civil-military relations, which are very important in the story that we're telling. Um, to me, Bonaparte, at this junction right here in the fall of 96, becomes an anomaly in the civil-military rela relations because he demonstrates uh, a, a, a more and more and rather expansive authoritarian and centralizing tendency uh, combined right with this br military brilliance that, that makes him an unusual military figure within this wider context. What do I mean by this? Compare what Napoleon does in Italy and what his fellow French commanders are doing in Rhineland, right, or the southern Germany. Um, and, and it's it's clear cut that the more you know, as 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 Bonaparte becomes successful, his relationship with Directory profoundly changed. More and more, he looks at himself not just as a military commander who is tasked with securing military objectives and then defer political solutions to the central government. But more and more, Bonaparte is usurping the policymaker's role. And that makes him a very uh, a powerful individual 
and, and very impact, you know, with a great impact not just on Italy but on the politics back at home. Bonaparte, so far, is obeying the instructions from the Directory. But even but in the fall of you know, in this in the late summer and early fall of '96, we'll see him increasingly push back on some of the Directory's initiatives, and and we see his letters becoming more. Uh, in a kind of uh, uh, confident, uh, with a confident tone that he can indeed pronounce his own stance on policy and strategy rather than simply to defer to the uh, the central government. Hey, I've just had a brainwave on this, on this point. Have you ever heard anyone suggest to you that Napoleon Bonaparte was the original rock star uh, in 1796? That, you know, you know, you just need to stick a, some shades on him uh, uh, when, when he's sitting there so arrogantly, uh, having just you know b- beaten off the Piedmont Piedmontese, uh, and you've you've got a you've got a Liam Gallagher there, haven't you? <laughs> Actually, I, I I was I was thinking of of um, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> there, there, there are certain yeah, don't stop me now. Absolutely, he does have Freddie's confidence and and ambition. <laughs> But in terms of abrasiveness, I think Gallagher is there. <laughs> He's better. <laughs> something in the middle, yeah. But there's just something about him, and of course, compared to the dull, drab politicians of, you know, the the, the administrators. I mean, they're just not in the same league, are they? It's okay. Here's another analogy for you. What about if the directory this this constitution is set up in such a way that there is a dimmer switch on, a, a limiter that prevents these bulbs from shining brightly, whereas there's no such limit on Bonaparte's, you know, he can dazzle everyone and just leave the uh, the directory in the shade. He can do what he likes. Although the directory could have recalled him, <laughs> right? He does have the power to do that. Uh, of course, here we see directory becoming hooked on success, right? The more successful Bonaparte is and the more he delivers on the promises or, or, the, or, or the, the more the directory has to defer to him. So he, he's able to get away with things because he's so successful, uh, and I, I love the fact that you know, kind of in in you know in, in this transition from the summer to fall of '96, when he uh, writes about the need to temporize uh, with Italian states, and especially with Rome, he doesn't describe it to his selfless. You know, he, he actually he, you know he, he he attributes all to the selfless motives. In one of the letters, he says that whenever general is in Italy. He's not at the center of everything. You will run great risks. <laughs> so it's, if it's not me, you're in a big danger of losing it. <laughs> but the truth is that there is a bigger picture for the directory to consider. And, you know, yes, that's one part of it. But there's so much more going on at the same time. You know, any, any, uh, however weak any administration running France, it's still France, as, uh, you know, a, a significant and impressive state. It's not a Margrave in southern Germany that we might might have been talking about so Charles you know let's let's hear a bit from you about the the bigger picture and the alliances which are being sought here we've got the Treaty of San Ildefonso this this Treaty of Alliance with Spain that seems pretty significant but there are other alliances in prospect as well and and France looking to make a difference and leverage interests all over the place yeah um let me go back to start off with um to 
what what Alex Mikabaridza was saying right in, right at the very beginning when we opened this discussion um, about 1796, witnessing a, a sort of sea change, if you like, in 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 attitudes to the revolution. Uh, you, you know, you have a, a move away from ideological division to um, the restoration of great power politics. Well, I mean, I don't think that great power politics ever went away particularly. Um, I certainly don't see the period before 1796 as an ideological conflict. Um, and in fact, there have been efforts to, to do a deal with Spain, so we're going to talk about Spain, prior to 1793, uh, 17, yeah, 1793 when, the, when the French come in, when the Spaniards come in, rather. Sorry. Um, but OK, now, yes, we do get an alliance between France and Spain. Um, July 1795, um, Spain drops out of the of the first coalition, signs of the, the, the Treaty of Basel um, and gets away with, with pretty generous peace terms. And those generous peace terms help to explain why in 1796 you find the Spanish government headed by uh, Chief Minister Manuel de Godoy, the famous royal favourite, we find it signing an alliance with France, actually entering the war on the side of France um, against Britain in particular. Yes, OK, um, one can see that as a, as a major development in international relations. And yet on, on, on another level, it's not a development at all because we're just seeing a return to the 18th century when France and Spain have been very close allies. But Charles, it seems like such a big shift. You know, we had been talking about the battles and the fighting in the Pyrenees, San Marcial and all, all those other places. But now they're getting into bed with each other. It, it just feels like this is it's hard to understand the Spanish motivation beyond simply that Basel was that they were let off relatively leniently. Um, on the contrary, it's actually quite easy to understand the Spanish motivation. Um, Spain is in a very, very difficult situation. Spain has two great strategic or potential strategic enemies. One is France and one is Britain. And Spain had been in that situation throughout the 18th century. Spain cannot fight both those countries at once. I mean, the idea of the British and French fighting on the same side is a bit bizarre but certainly Spain cannot go her own way her security depends on having only one of those two powers as an enemy at any given time the way that was achieved was through the uh, the, the, the family compact the the, the the treaty between the, the French Bourbons and the Spanish Bourbons and that meant that Spain and France were allied to one another um, formed a, a potentially very powerful naval bloc right through the 18th century. Um, OK. French Revolution happens. Spain is pulled into the war against France. But the basic problem hasn't gone away. Now, it might have gone away if the British had proved to be reliable allies. But one thing that becomes very, very apparent in the period from 1793 to 1795 is that the Spaniards cannot trust the British 
as far as they can throw them. It, the, the British are, are, are all through these three years. They're constantly doing things which un, undermine the interests of the Spaniards, um, stymie their intentions, um, and are generally obnoxious. So the Spaniards look at them and, you know, they, they fight this war in which, frankly, they, they do quite well, really, in, in terms of the land fighting. And they don't feel that the British have pulled their weight. And they, 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 they're absolutely certain that the British remain a threat. What is the obvious way forward? The obvious way forward in this situation where power politics hasn't changed a whit is to do a deal with France, because then you resurrect the the the, the, the Franco-Spanish naval bloc, which is the best way you've got of keeping the British in their place. And of course, the um, figure, the key figure in Spanish policymaking at the time was the Prince of the Peace, uh, Manuel de Godoy. Godoy was actually to start off with a reformer. In, 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 in the line of enlightened absolutism. And secondly, he was very far-sighted in um, terms of international policy. I've read his correspondence with the king and queen. He used to write three or four or five times a day to the king and queen, um, pouring out his thoughts to them, pouring out his worries to them. And over and over again, he says, we cannot trust the French. The French are only going to be friends of their own interests. Any, any um, agreement we have with them can only be temporary. How does Godoy see this alliance then? What he sees it as is as a means of building up the Spanish army. In the course of the 18th century, Spain had been fighting Britain. She hadn't needed a big army. She concentrated on her navy, which is the third biggest in the world. The army had been run down. Godoy knows this perfectly well. And no sooner has peace broken out in 1795 than he embarks on, on what he conceived of as a major process of, of military reform. The aim was if you had a strong navy and a strong army, Spain could be independent of both the British and the French. Now, that reform doesn't work. It's a complete failure. But it's important to understand that the, the, the Spaniards um, did not go into this alliance with their eyes shut and did go into it with a view to their own interests. And, and of course, this is looking ahead to next uh, the next episode. But um, I think we might be worth laying the ground that the French are very interested in uh, events in Ireland at, at the time, isn't that right? There is a revolutionary movement emerging in Ireland called the United Irishmen. Um, I won't go into the details, but initially it's a political movement. But then for various reasons, it moves more and more in the direction of, of armed rebellion. And the leadership, uh, epitomised by a uh, a chap from uh, Belfast, actually, called Wolf Tone. Um, the leadership turned to France. Wolf Tone goes over to France and he says, look, there's this wonderful revolutionary movement building up in Ireland. 
help us. And the French duly agree to help that revolutionary movement. Now, I won't go on any further because it will preempt the next episode. But it's important to realise that the French do not see the conflict in terms of themselves and themselves alone against the rest. The French also see the war in terms of themselves at the centre of a coalition of allies. Um, whether we're talking about you know, Irishmen, um, Spaniards or Italians. These, these are groups that the revolution can reach out to and um, frankly exploit. Because the last point I'll make is this. Um, why does Napoleon and Napoleon's victories matter so much to the French government? The reason is quite simple. The French government is bankrupt. It doesn't have any money except what Bonaparte and his fellow generals can send it. It's as simple as that. So what I'd like to ask you about, Alex, uh, after all that from Charles, is, is you know, just... Let's have a look again at, at the, some of those global developments mentioned, uh, touched on earlier, because we've got the Cape Colony falling, a, a du- well, the Dutch fleet there uh, surrendering to the British. We've got developments on uh, Saint-Domingue that, that that's continuing there. And, and you've got George Washington's farewell address. There's, there's so much going on that, that, that we could have been talking about that, <laughs> that, that we haven't. Were we wrong to spend so much time talking about the Rhine and, and the North Italian theatre in, in, uh, in this episode? Oh, in some ways. <laughs> no, no. Um, I think this is, this is where, um, if, you, you know, if we look in hindsight, this is, we know that this is where the, um, really the, the grand questions will be decided. If, if Bonaparte was defeated in Italy in, in summer of 96, the war might have turned quite differently, right? It's it's his sustained success that he will continue to build on in the fall and and, and forward that will allow the France, uh, the French will to 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 prevail uh, to prevail ultimately. Uh, but the developments that you outlined are important because you will hear about them in the years to come. So in, in many respects, we see the larger framework of revolutionary and what Wilson called Napoleonic Wars being set. And part of this framework will be continued uh, American neutrality, right? Americans unwilling to participate in the squibbles of the old world. Um, we will see the continued success of the British amphibious warfare, uh, and the ability uh, of the Royal Navy to project the British power to, you know, quite distant parts of the world, which is something that France will struggle containing or struggle responding to. And that will be a long kind of theme that uh, uh, we will re- keep referring to throughout this uh, period. And of course, the control of the trade routes that are so, par- you know, so that becomes so crucial to, to funding and sustaining the war effort also will play out uh, or is playing out at this moment at this time and will will uh, uh, do so in the years to come so I think 
more broadly this this kind of a snapshot look that we did in over the of the last two episodes of six months of 1796 offers a very good uh, uh, starting point for the for the more you know uh, greater global view of, of the conflict uh, setting in stone mo you know in, in stone some of the developments that will be with us for two more decades good excellent well i feel like um i've had a good fresh breath of fresh atlantic fresh air there uh you know after being uh, perhaps it's slightly uh, stuffed up in in central in europe um, so okay well let's finish the episode with the usual question so at the end of the third quarter of 1796 what are the big question marks what are we wait what are the cliffhangers that you know the situation now with vermsa back in mantua Bonaparte's, I mean, he's, he's still on the strategic defensive, I suppose. Um, and of course, no progress as usual on the Rhine. So what are the big question marks for the Austrians, for the French and for others as we head towards the next episode, which will be October, November, December of 96? So, Alex, why don't we start with you? Oh, I would if if I you know in in the fall of seventy nine six I would be biting my you know nails watching what will happen when the new Austrian army comes down those uh, alpine slopes. Uh, Austrians certainly uh, were hoping that it will roll back this upstart general that that has made so far, especially because indeed he will be hopefully caught. Right, that's the hope uh, that he would be caught between the two Austrian. Uh, armies, one in Mantua and the one coming from uh, from across the Alps. Uh, so this is this is really the nail biter uh, uh, because the outcome is not determined by far. Uh, Napoleon's army is much smaller, uh, and Austrians had m plenty of opportunities, or will have, <laughs> hopefully, plenty of opportunities to to defeat him. Great, that is the big question mark. We'll see how that pans out. Well, Charles, what's what's on your mind as as you look ahead at the end of September 1796, wondering what on earth might be about to to come next? We've we've very briefly um, mentioned George Washington. Um, it seems to me that the big question mark is. I mean, yes, I, I take everything that's said about the military campaign and so forth. I mean, will, will, will Napoleon be able to maintain his position? Yes, of course. Um, however, there is another question. Across the Atlantic, you have a political general, a man who could be portrayed as the saviour of his country, a man whom some people are starting to compare Napoleon with you know is Napoleon the George Washington of his country is Napoleon the man who's going to save the French Revolution in the same way that, that Washington saves the American Revolution there is however a profound difference George Washington steps down walks away from power he serves the state the question that you must ask, or that, that many people must have started to ask in the autumn of 1796, is who or what is Napoleon serving? Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Well, that is the big question mark to finish the episode on. I can... 
I haven't edited in yet, but listeners will certainly have heard the rumble of thunder that inevitably follows Charles's uh, bombshell question mark that concludes this episode. Thank you to Charles Estelle and, and to Alex Mikabridze. Thanks also to Rick Schneid, Jordan Hayworth and Bianca Maria Fontana. Thanks to my old friend Ben Eckersley for composing and performing all the music you've heard. At the end of this quarter, there are 6,834 days to go until Waterloo. I hope you'll join me for episode 20 in a couple of weeks in the usual way. Among my guests will be Rachel Blackman-Rogers to describe the fateful consequences of Bonaparte's success for the Royal Navy's presence in the Western Mediterranean. It was a huge blow. It meant that the British had no political influence in Southern Europe. When Henry Dundas realised, he went ballistic. He went absolutely ballistic. (laughs) 